Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy, compound word, deuteros, meaning two or second, namas, referring to the law. This is the second giving of the law. You'll find the commandments repeated in this book, penned by Moses under the inspiration of the Spirit. Deuteronomy chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1, let's all hear the Lord's word. These be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain over against the Red Sea between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. There are eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. And it came to pass in the fortieth year, in the eleventh month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spake unto the children of Israel according unto all that the Lord had given him in commandment unto them. After he had slain Sihon, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, which dwelt at Ashtaroth in Edri, on this side Jordan, in the land of Moab, began Moses to declare this law, saying, The Lord our God spake unto us in Horeb, saying, Ye have dwelt long enough in this mount. We'll stop there. Trusting God to add his blessing to it for his name's sake. Please bow your head with me for a moment and let's seek the Lord together. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, as we pause for a moment to ponder this portion of thy word. We remember something Christ Jesus said to his disciples one day, Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. We thank thee, Lord, that that promise is as true now as it was when it was given. And we pray that though we be a little flock, thou wilt give to us more of the kingdom of God. It would advance more in our souls. We would know more of the reign of Christ, that divine control, that subduing of the flesh, and the strengthening of the servant's heart, the increase of faith, the overflow of the joy of the Lord, all that's part and parcel to being given the kingdom, advancing in the kingdom. Grant something of that tonight, we pray, according to thy will and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. A number of months ago, we... We looked at a statement made by Job in the evening service when he was living in days when God's face was shining brightly upon this man's life. At that time, he made this comment, I shall die in my nest. It was at the end of a catalog of the blessings of God upon his life. And at that point in time, he was convinced 
It's always going to go on like this. I will die in this nice, blessed, comfortable nest. But we all know that's not how it worked out for Job. He didn't die in that nice, comfortable nest. Toward the end of Deuteronomy, Moses gives an illustration from nature as to why Job didn't die in his comfortable nest without referencing Job at all. Just the illustration shows us why he was not going to die in that nest. Moses writes in chapter 32, verse 11, about the eagle that stirs up her nest of eaglets and flutters her, what are to them, giant wings, beating them against the the branches and the nest itself. The Hebrew word translated stirs up. It's... uh, uh, it's really a, a, a rousing up out of sleep. Someone who's lethargic, as it were, shaking them. That's the stirring up. It's not just with her, her beak. She does a little nudging here and there. No, she shakes them. And why does she do that? It's all to get them out of that nest in which they have become quite comfortable. They would stay there forever, I suppose, if she let them. That would be their downfall if that was the case. They would never learn to fly. They would never learn to hunt. They would never be able to eat except she kept bringing food to them. So, she knows... They must leave the nest, whether they want to or not. It's got to happen. So she actually kicks them out and lets them tumble, as we would say, head over heels, fall through the air, all the while they are furiously flapping their young wings. Of course, they never hit the ground because just at the right moment, she swoops down beneath them and catches them and lifts them back up to the nest again and the process is repeated until they learn to fly on their own. And so God was not going to allow Job to die in his nest. A time came when the Lord had to disturb Job's nest and cast him out of it. Change had to come. No matter how painful and how frightening that change was going to be, it had to come. It's this matter about of how God's people still need their nests disturbed by the hand of God. That introduces this passage before us this evening. Israel is, as I'm sure aware, on on the verge of entering into the land of Canaan. And in 
preparation for that, Moses takes the time to recount Israel's history over the last 40 years. That's a good thing, you know, to look back on how the Lord has led us along in this pilgrim journey. We must never, as some sadly do, we must never try to live in the past. Um, nor must we try to live off of the past. While the past mercies of God can indeed be a source of, uh, of encouragement and strengthening our faith, we must never be satisfied with that. We need a continual up-to-date experience of Christ. Not only going back in our minds over yesteryear and what it used to be, but it's now. It's now you need the reality of walking with Christ. Now the reality of faith. Now the reality of the power of God on your life. And the only way that that will come about is if we make progress. If we go forward. Because if we stay in our nest, it's, it's like staying in a rut. And we like our ruts. But as Dr. Paisley was fond of saying when he was alive, the only difference between a grave and a rut is the depth of the rut. That's it. But to advance in our personal Christian life and for the life and witness of any church to advance and make progress, there's one crucial element that will always be found where that progress is going to come, and that one element is change. Progress means change. This truth is set up before us in this passage we read this evening, especially in the text found in the last half of verse 6, where God spoke to Israel at Mount Horeb. He's recalling that event. He said, you remember how the Lord spoke to you 40 years ago at the mount, and this is what he said, ye have dwelt long enough in this mount. It's time for change. They would have gotten very comfortable just right there, but nope, you have dwelt long enough in this mount. So this evening, for a little bit, I want us to think about changes at the hand of an unchanging God. Changes at the hand of an unchanging God. The first thing I want you to see is the preparation necessary for the change. The preparation necessary for the change. Note carefully the first half of God's statement to the children of Israel. Ye have dwelt long enough in this mount. We're going to get to that part about long enough in a moment, but do, do you see the truth that is lying quietly on the surface of that statement? You have dwelt long enough, but you needed to dwell this time period at the mount. Upon leaving the land of Egypt, the Lord brought Israel to the foot of Mount Horeb in the desert of Sinai. 
Before them was the land of Canaan. We're going back 40 years. It was the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey that they could have enjoyed to their heart's content. It was the land that had been promised in covenant to Abraham many, many years earlier. But time was needed before they would be ready to enter the land. So God kept them camped out at the base of Mount Horeb for almost an entire year. He brought them out of Egypt For almost a year, they set up shop. And what took place during that period was all in preparation for them to eventually get into the land of Canaan. It was while they were encamped at Horeb that in the first place they were given very high and holy views of God. They saw with their own eyes that mount just burning with fire, and they were struck with fear. They, they were given a view of the Almighty that caused them to tremble, and it was certainly deepened when they heard the trumpet, the loud trumpet of God sounding, getting louder and louder and louder. That was all part of God teaching them that He was to be feared. He wasn't one of them. This was the Almighty to be revered. His law was to be obeyed. He was the giver of life and the taker of life. They needed a higher view of God than they had. And so they are in this place of preparation to get that before they're going to go forward. During this time period, moreover, they were given the instructions for proper worship. And they needed that. The pattern for the tabernacle was given the building of all the pieces of furniture that were to go into the tabernacle and the worship was done during this time period. The whole Levitical system was established and taught to the children of Israel. It was here in that time period that they were taught a very needful, yet, yes, very painful lesson that God will not be worshipped any old way they like. I speak of the golden calf that Moses' brother Aaron formed and said, This is your God. Oh, God was teaching them, You must worship me the way I say I am to be worshipped. It's not left up to you. It's not left up to your judgment. I will tell you exactly how I want to be worshipped. Here's how it's done. And I will accept nothing else. You know, that's, that's our tendency. It was a tendency from creation. When Cain 
tried to approach God and worship Him his own way and did not come with a sacrifice like his brother. That was simply man attempting to worship God his way instead of God's way. They had to learn this vital lesson. It's my way, the Lord says, or no way. He has a whole lot to say about how he is to be worshipped and how he is not to be worshipped. They had to learn that to go forward. That judgment of God upon them for their folly, for trying to worship him the wrong way, thousands were slain as a result of it. That was a very painful experience. Husbands were lost. Dads were slain. There were tents where there was no father coming home, no husband coming home to his wife. You can read about the slaying almost glibly. But it was serious stuff. But it was all necessary to prepare them to hear God say, All right, you've dwelt in this mount long enough. The time that you needed to be here is over. It's time to go forward. Let me say the same applies to you and me. We, we, we may want ever so badly. We may want to advance in the Christian life. And if we're Christians, we will want to advance in the Christian life. We're not going to be content with where we are if we're healthy spiritually. We may want to taste of the fruit of the land of blessing, the milk and honey. But the prerequisite for that is that we dwell for a time in the spiritual land in which God has placed us and the land in which His sovereign hand has led us. That's got to be there. It may well be that you have been living for some time in a land that you would call a wilderness. You've been walking in a wilderness experience. It, it may be that as with Israel, the Lord has led you to a place in your life where you've had to face affliction and trouble and trouble and affliction. But remember that there must be a time of dwelling there before God will say, okay, that's enough. You've dwelt long enough. It's time to move on. Perhaps there are higher views of God that you need developed in your life. Really, if we're honest, there's no perhaps about it. We need higher views of God. Perhaps there's something in your worship, whether public or private, needs to be amended. Because it's not according to Scripture. Indeed, perhaps you've been found guilty of some form of idolatry that has taken the place of God in your life. It's more important to you than the Lord. And no matter what you say with your lips, the life says otherwise. You're willing to sacrifice God for that thing that is your idol. Whether or not any of that be true of you, you can rest assured that there will be for, for all of us the time when we must dwell in a difficult place. 
in order to prepare us for future blessing. It, it must be. The second thing I want to think with me about for a moment is the gracious purpose of God for our changes, his gracious purpose for our changes. When God told Israel, you have dwelt in this mount long enough, he was saying, in essence, it's time for change. It's time for change. It's time to get out of the nest. I'm going to disturb your comfort zone. It's time for change. We'll do ourselves and the cause of God a great service if we will endeavor to keep the sovereign will of God in the forefront of all of our thinking. Amen. It is a common tendency among the people of God to look at secondary causes when they are faced with change and forget there's the great first cause of all things. Nothing, nothing at all happens in this world apart from God. Nothing. He has absolute control, and he is directing all the affairs of the universe. This is his universe. This is his world. God, as king, as the Lord of Lord, rules absolutely. He always has his way. You dare not say otherwise. How could you? God can't get his way. That man actually has more power than God. He's stronger than God. He can actually prevent God from having his way. That is not the God of this book, of this Bible, of this book. He does as he wills in heaven and on earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Keep that always in mind when you think about these changes in life. The Lord's word makes it very clear that it's God and God alone who wills these changes, whatever they are in our lives. No change, no matter how big a change or how small a change will ever come into your life or mine without first being placed there by the very wise and loving hands of the Lord. There are no coincidences. There's nothing by chance. It's never a happenstance. It's God carrying out His will. He alone is the one whose universe he rules over. His domain, his dominion is from everlasting to everlasting. That's why the Holy Spirit could move Paul to write, he makes all things work together for good to them that love God. That could not be true. He could not make all things work together for good. if he didn't always have his way. 
God does not ask us to believe that everything that happens to us is a good thing. That's not what the text is saying. But what God wants us to believe is that He is going to take all those things, whether good or bad, and make them work together for our good. Therefore, we can believe with assurance that God's will, His purpose is always gracious as it touches His people when it comes to change. If we don't think that way, we're going to be afraid of change. So I can tell you with complete confidence this evening that whatever changes you may be facing in your life right now, they are changes that God has willed, and they are changes that are part of His gracious purpose, whatever they are. And I know something else I can tell you with absolute confidence. Don't fight the changes. Don't buck. This is the will of God. He's ordered the change. That fact leads me to say that these changes, since they are part and parcel to the sovereign will of God, are very needful. The Lord never wills anything that's not needful. I mean, do you actually think that this wise God will actually will something, decree it to come to pass, and it's not necessary? Everything that He is from the foundation of the world, from his own eternal mind, everything that he has planned, every detail, whatever it might be, it had to be so. There's no whim with God. Ah, maybe it's always dead on what has to take place. The question I want to try to answer just now is why God plans and purposes and wills these changes in our lives, indeed, why we must expect them, why we must expect our nest to be disturbed, to be kicked out of it, to have our comforts taken away from us, to see change at the hand of God. first place, God purposes changes as He did with Israel of old. He purposes changes in our lives because of our tendency to just to get settled down in this old world. That's in all of us, Amen. just to get settled down in this old world. Even though we know the Apostle wrote in Hebrews 13, here we have no continuing abiding, enduring city, but seek one to come. Here, this is not our dwelling place. It's temporary. To take the words of the old Negro spiritual, that I will be dating myself when I quote the words, but I'm sure you might remember them. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. 
My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, but we think we can. We act as if we can. We live as if we're permanent residents and not pilgrims, strangers and aliens. As God says we are, we forget that we're tenth dwellers in this world. And the Lord needs to send change into our lives to remind us of that. He doesn't let us get our roots down into the world. And when he sees that happening, he comes and shakes us. He disturbs us. In spite of this testimony found in all the scriptures, believers have this propensity in their attitudes and in their actions to live as if the world is their real home. That's why they can... I I, I go back to the day of Haggai. That's why they could dwell in their sealed houses while the temple of God was still in ruins. They had all the time in the world to fix up their own personal houses, but there wasn't any time to fix up the house of God. And the Lord was offended by it. It grieved him. You're living like, you know, this world's your home. So the Lord orders these changes and he upsets our world when he finds that we are dwelling at ease in Zion. We just like to just hunker down and get nice and comfortable. Don't bother me with that. Too much trouble, too much work. Leave me alone. You have dwelt in this mount long enough. It's time to move on. It's time for change. You're getting too settled down. As I was pondering this again this afternoon, uh, Rachel and I were talking about this. Probably in the Job message, I'm thinking... About the lost, about the lost, David said in Psalm 55, because they have no changes, therefore they fear not God. So it's good to have changes, isn't it? We need them. I, I, like you, would like to get into a rut and stay there. Just get a place where it's comfortable. You know, it'd be nice to have a nice, comfortable-sized church where it's basically full and there's no real problems and everyone's getting along nicely. 
and uh, the, the needs are met and the preaching's received and everybody's just happy. But the Lord steps in and says, no, I'm not going to let you get comfortable like that. I'm going to bring you into a hard time. Because you need to grow. You need to advance. You've dwelt long enough in this mount. There's an interesting metaphor used in the Old Testament to describe people who seldom experience change. God says of Moab... In Jeremiah 48, Moab hath been at ease, get that, Moab hath been at ease from his youth, and he hath settled on his lees, and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel, neither hath he gone into captivity, therefore his taste remained in him, and his scent is not changed. God is likening Moab to wine that sat in the vessel, the skin or the barrel, whatever it was, that sat there undisturbed for a long time. And all the sediment, the lees, has settled to the bottom of the vessel where it remains undisturbed. In Zephaniah chapter 1, God said that he would come and punish the men of Jerusalem who were settled on their lees. No change, just nice and settled down. So you see, it's it's not a good thing to be settled on your leaves. We need God to send changes into our lives, no matter how much they disturb our world, no matter how painful they are, because you and I have a tendency ongoing to forget that we are pilgrims and we are strangers and we are tent dwellers. We're just traveling through. God also sends these changes to keep us from becoming perfunctory in living out the Christian life. You know, doing the same thing, which when you get into a rut, that's what you do. It's the same thing over and over and over again. Day in and day out. That's not only monotonous, but it leaves the person doing the thing without any real thought. It it becomes mechanical. Years and years ago when I was... What was I there for? <laughs> That's not bad. Was I married then? I think I was married. Was I married when I worked at the battery factory? You don't remember. Your, your memory's as bad as mine. <laughs> if you've ever worked in a battery factory, you'd never want to. Uh, but the, I'm, I was the, the operator at the machine where the lead plates would come, arms swing around, you load them up, it goes around again. 
After a while, you know, I, I could, first I would give a lot of thought to it. You know, you're dealing with that lead fumes and all that. You got mast and gear and there's acid. But after a while, I could almost go to sleep. Just repetitious over and over and over and over again. Now, it became perfunctory. I could do it without really thinking. But you know what? Your walk with God can, can become the same thing. Your worship can become the same, just perfunctory. Okay, you come to church, you sing the hymns, you hear the sermon, you go home. You come to church, you sing the hymns, you hear the sermon, you go home. You can end up doing it without thinking. This, this, just, well, it's just what we do. I wonder how many Christians are actually living like that. It's just what we do. They couldn't tell you why they're doing what they're doing. How many actually, this is fresh in my mind from the Bible class this morning, how many actually do you think that will actually come to the Lord's table and do it perfunctorily? And give no thought to actually what they're about at the table. We get into a rut. We might have started out with, with zeal and energy and vision and hope, but after a while, we get settled on our leaves because there's no change. There's nothing to make the, that man alert or that woman attentive and, and careful. And that's what happens to us when we go for a long time without changes, without disturbances. We need to be disturbed. We just need to be disturbed. You shouldn't be shocked by it all when disturbances come because you need to be disturbed. Sometimes it might be the preaching. Maybe this message is disturbing to you. We'll say, Amen, that is very good because you need to be disturbed. It's disturbing to lose a loved one. It's disturbing to have lost children. Amen. It's disturbing to have setback upon setback upon setback. But it's necessary. We have to have it because we will become perfunctory. Your prayer life can become perfunctory. Your Bible reading can become perfunctory. Your church attendance can become perfunctory. You just do it without real thought. It's just a habit. But there's very little life and zeal and understanding in what you're doing. We'll do the right thing and we'll believe the right thing, but will do it without a heart, even without a head for that matter. We can pray ever so rightly, ever so theologically, but it's dead and it's lifeless praying. It's like a robot. We may sing ever so beautifully, 
but the soul is not engaged in the singing. We can listen to sermons, but we're not really thinking. That fellow who was in the theological hall with me many years ago, he says, I can... I know how to put it on. I can sit there in, in the seat and have my eyes glued to the preacher, but I'm a million miles away. He told me this. You look so interested, but it was perfunctory. What's needed? Change. kicked out of the nest, things taken away, hopes and expectations shattered, the Lord not giving us what we think we so badly need, and yet giving us the very last thing that we think we need. It's about Progress through change. You've dwelt in this mountain long enough. So he comes and he shakes us up and wakes us out of our sleep. New troubles, new testings, new challenges are ordered by God to bring us to a point where the old grace of yesterday is not going to do. We need, we realize fresh grace. I need fresh mercy for this. I need fresh wisdom for this. And we get stirred up again. Praying becomes more sincere, more earnest. Because now we feel our need. It's no longer perfunctory. We must have God's ear. We must have God's answer. We need help. Guys, we will be like that eaglet in the nest. Where's Mama Bird? Here, just open up. Well, I'll wait for Mama Bird to come with the food today. Oh, isn't this cozy? Because there is no change. The Lord does not want to be served, worshipped mechanically. So he brings change. Thirdly, God brings about these changes because the honest truth is we will never make progress without them. If the children of Israel had remained at Mount Horeb, they obviously would have never gotten into the land of Canaan if they just stayed there. If you want to go from A to B, you can't stay at A. And that's true of the spiritual life. If we want to go higher, we want to go deeper, we want to progress, we want to mature more than what we are, we want our prayer life to become sweeter and deeper or longer, we want to have a better understanding of the Scriptures, then you've got to go from point A to point B, and that means you've got to leave point A to get to point B. And the Lord uses change to do that. 
If growth's going to come, there must be change. There's a fourth reason that the Lord orders these changes in our lives, however disturbing they might be, and that's to enable us to do more for Him. There are times in our lives when we reach a point where, in in a particular set of circumstances, we have reached the saturation point. Our work for the Lord, what we can do for Him, seems to be at a standstill. And in order to enable us to get out of that place where we can actually do more for Him, He either brings a change in us or He brings a change in our circumstances or both so we can do more. Get out of that place of saturation. And so He sends these changes for our good. As the old philosopher said years ago, came across that quote a long time ago and it just hit home with me, change is indeed painful yet ever needful. Painful but needful. We need them. Thirdly tonight, there is a great precaution, a warning that we must understand when it comes to our changes. Opening words of verse 6, The Lord our God spake unto us in Horeb, saying, He had dwelt in this mount long enough. This change was made on God's authority. The Lord our God spake unto us, saying, You've dwelt in this mount long enough. And that same truth was illustrated the whole time they were in the wilderness. When the pillar of cloud uh, stopped, they stopped. When the cloudy, fiery pillar moved, they broke camp and they moved. It was always at the Lord's bidding that they change their place of dwelling. But they dare not go unless the cloud went. It was the Lord speaking, saying, time for change. We're breaking camp. You've dwelt in this place long enough. You've dwelt in this place long enough. Change only at God's command. That's the precaution. I say this because it's easy to make changes of your own accord. Just because you like change, because you don't like the situation, well, I'm going to change things. I don't like the difficulty. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Well, that would be very foolish. You're going somewhere and the Lord has not sent you. You're trying to do something and God hasn't told you to do it. You're just trying to change. But it's of your own accord. Some people, out of sheer boredom, like to change. They're just bored. 
But I, I will tell you that change will, that that kind of change will bring with it a whole new set of temptations and trials, a set of trials and troubles about which they know absolutely nothing. And they had wished, they find themselves, I wish I had never done this. It's the old saying of, you better leave well enough alone. There's nothing like having a heart and mind that's contented with the will of God. I'm not talking about this uh, perfunctory, I'm in a rut. I'm referring to spiritual contentment with where the Lord has you in your life, in your walk. Not always restless. Yes, always striving for higher ground, striving to be more like Jesus Christ. That's the kind of striving you never want to lose. But always dissatisfied. You don't have to look very long to find things that are wrong with you that you'd be unhappy with. They're, they're there. They're, they're right there and you see them. And we all want change in that. But, but, but you know, you want to be careful that I need change and I want change. You, you better be sure that the Lord is saying, you dwell in this mount long enough. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. That's what the Scripture says. Don't be in a hurry for change because of any reason that comes from your own heart. But if God sends the change, then you welcome it with open arms, whatever the disturbance might be. Because you know He's only doing what's best, the wisest thing that could be done. All to take you forward. Those are changes at the hand of an unchanging God. May God write His word on our hearts for His namesake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Our God and our Father, we come at the end of this Sabbath day to Thy throne of grace again to pray now that Thou wilt bless the word that's been preached. It will linger on. It will not soon be forgotten. Keep the devil from snatching it away. Give us understanding, Lord, for it's the man who received the engrafted word with understanding that brought about much fruit. And we want, Lord, to be fruitful Christians, not to be hearers of thy word only. For any of thy children here who find that their nests are being disturbed, Remind them, Lord, again of these foundational truths regarding thy ways. The disturbance comes from thee, always for their good. Give us the heart, Lord, that wants to go wherever thou dost lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen.